Okay, so as I think most of you know, since the start of the new year, we've been exploring a new theme, the theme of freedom, what gets in the way and what supports it. And actually, I say it's a new theme, but more accurately, it's something we've always, always been exploring all along, because every aspect of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, is pointing us in the direction of freedom. So in some ways, freedom is not a new theme. You could say it's an eternal theme. Nevertheless, in the blur of everyday life, I think it can be pretty easy to lose sight of this freedom. We can get so caught up just in the stress and the complexity of surviving day to day that Freedom can seem like a somewhat distant, remote goal. It can seem like a luxury rather than a necessity that it actually is. And that's one reason that I chose to highlight freedom this year, to try and keep it foremost in what we're doing here and why. Now, I know many of you here have come, like me, have just come back from the five-day study and practice retreat with Willa and Elizabeth and me, which is a pretty deep dive into the principles of dependent co-arising. So those of you who are not familiar with that teaching, it's a set of different factors looking at how those factors come together in our lives, either to reinforce dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, or the opposite to lead us towards more ease, happiness, peace, and yet deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Does that sound right for those of you who were there? (laughs) Trying to condense five days of teaching into two sentences. (laughs) So hopefully that gives you the gist of it. So it may be fresh in your mind, those of you who are there, this understanding of conditionality, the conditions and the way those conditions lead and influence our experience. And you may remember, let's see, do you remember one of the root causes of the whole chain that leads into suffering? Anyone remember the one of the primal conditions? It, very good, ignorance. I was thinking I might have to prompt you, but no, ignorance is at the root of the whole chain reaction into misery. Now, if you weren't there, or you're not so familiar with these teachings, you might be wondering, ignorance of what? So for the purpose of tonight's talk, I'm going to focus on just one aspect of ignorance. Not knowing, not understanding, not seeing clearly the truth of impermanence. The truth of change, of instability, of flux. How experiences endlessly arise, stay for a while, pass away. So when I was here two weeks ago, I touched into the truth of impermanence in relation to our own bodies, the truth of our own mortality. This may not be great news, but tonight I actually want to come back to that same theme because it's such a powerful topic. And as I was reflecting on it, I felt like 
it's almost disrespectful to just touch into it one week and then right, okay, done that, let next, move on. It also feels important to acknowledge that exploring this truth for some of us can be pretty confronting. We have our own individual, even actually biological imperative to avoid the truth of our body's mortality. And on top of that, we have the society-wide taboos that have us, I think for most people, just reflexively turn away from anything in that terrain. Does that feel accurate for people? You might be noticing it right now. I wish I just stayed home and watched TV. (laughs) Or is it too late to leave? So to notice that, if that happens to be coming into play, that is really useful information to see those conditioned responses, right? It can be a pretty potent set of conditions. And because of the strength of those delusions, the Buddha was pretty insistent about the value of contemplating this in our everyday lives. So if you were here two weeks ago, you may remember I brought in those five subjects for frequent recollection. And tonight I'm just going to stay with the one that is, I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. Very simple. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. So for those of you who were here two weeks ago, just curious. During the intervening two weeks, did any of you think about that at all in those two weeks? Or was it just, and then gone? Yes. You did think about it? Yeah? Anybody else? Yeah? A few hands raising. Thank you. Yeah. That's actually surprising. Because, as I said, there are a lot of internal and external conditions that work together. I would say actually conspire to keep us in a kind of a cozy delusion. And it's cozy in the short term. But this is the kicker. It comes at a pretty significant cost in the medium to long term. And I'll come back to that later. And perhaps because of the strength of those delusions, the Buddha at times, I think, deliberately tried to confront us with the reality in ways that are jolting and jarring, perhaps to try to shock us out of a complacency that maybe we didn't even know we had. So at times these teachings can be confronting. But you've also heard me talk about the other side, that they can be consoling. So it's not all one or the other. They also offer us comfort and solace, relief from the dukkha that's just inherent in being human. So at different times in our practice, we can actively turn to the consolation wing or the confrontation wing. But overall, I think most of us need both to help wake us up and to keep us balanced. So we can begin this practice, this training in knowing impermanence by tuning into the world out there So there's a famous passage in the Diamond Sutra, which is in the Mahayana tradition. And this sutra references an image that the Buddha used earlier in the Pali Canon. 
Some of you may know it. So you should view this fleeting world as a star at dawn, as a bubble in a stream, as a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So very evocative. And if we're in a balanced frame of mind, we might nod wisely and hear these poetic evocations of impermanence. And, you know, maybe we think, oh, that's nice. Yeah, just the natural rhythms of change. I'm okay with that. And I'm totally happy with change when it results in the end of something I don't like, that I don't want. That back pain finally releases, yes, the truth of a Nietzsche impermanence. And then two minutes later it comes back, damn, the truth of a Nietzsche impermanence. Not so keen on it. We resist it. We wish that the absence of back pain could last longer, maybe even forever. And I think there's something in us that still believes we should be able to somehow master impermanence so that we can make the bad stuff go away as quickly as possible and make the good stuff stick around for longer. I think it's pretty obvious when we hear it described like that, that it's delusion, right? We can't most of the time have that level of control. But opening to this truth on deeper and deeper levels isn't easy because it's such a primal core desire. So the antidote to that ignorance is to sit in meditation and to practice knowing change, knowing impermanence on the moment-to-moment level. And that strengthens equanimity. As I think most of you know, equanimity is an aspect of mindfulness itself. So every moment of mindfulness is strengthening that non-reactivity that's present with change. And as we develop more capacity to be with change on the micro level, it becomes a little easier to deal with change in relation to here, this flesh and blood body. So we know we're going to die, every one of us. We don't know when, but for sure it will happen. And even just saying that, you know, looking at all of you, I can feel a part of my mind going, not really, well, not you. Oh, but no, no, no. I can feel this this kind of visceral resistance. Is that really true? There's this disjunct in my mind. The truth is that inside every one of us is a skeleton. It's just waiting to get out. When will that be? So you might just notice what it's like to have heard this much. Maybe there's some interest, some openness and curiosity. Maybe flickers of resistance or aversion or tuning out. Maybe for some of you, oh yeah, equanimity. So whatever your experience, just making space for it. So as I mentioned just then, I was feeling it, even naming that to you, feeling that sort of visceral, "Mm, not really, 
resistance to it. And so for me, it was a relief to discover there's actually research that our brains have some kind of primal mechanism that distorts this understanding of death. There's some built-in biological delusion that sees death as an unfortunate event that only happens to other people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the researchers who did this study theorized that it's because knowledge of death goes against the survival instinct of our biology, which is oriented to helping us stay alive. And to me, it was helpful to hear that because it gives us a sense of what we're up against when we try to reorient towards a more spacious acceptance of this reality. And some of you heard me share how a few years ago I was fortunate to have the opportunity to go to an autopsy in the U.S., to an autopsy lab where um, we were invited as part of a death and dying group to visit the lab and look at cadavers. And probably some of you here, medical people, have had that experience. But for me, it was a pretty rare opportunity. And these um, bodies had been dissected. It was part of a medical training institute. And I went with quite some apprehension, thinking that it would be gruesome, grueling. But before we even got to go into the lab, we met the director of the lab, And again, I would have kind of assumed that somebody who spends their whole day working with autopsy corpses would have a kind of a blasé attitude to it. But she was so inspiring just from the way she spoke and the way she brought out each of the bodies for us to look at. She just had enormous respect for each of those bodies. And when I came to look at the first one, I felt a sense of awe, even a kind of a sacredness, which isn't a word that I use very often, and not one that I would have thought of in the context of a stainless steel fluorescent lit laboratory. So the body that we looked at had been prepared so that we could see inside it and see all the different organs like the pancreas and the gallbladder and the salivary glands and the brain, to name just a few. And the complexity of just the physical aspects of the body was pretty incredible. In here, all these different lumps of meat and bone, how they work together to support a human life. Just the meat and bone aspect is phenomenal. But then we also have the chemical system of the hormones that are helping us digest and sleep and wake up and regulate our moods. And then interacting with them is the electrical system, the firing of neurons that are also sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies to keep the whole system responding appropriately. And to me, it was just so incredible that all these different complex systems, parts of the body function together so well most of the time. And it was still confronting to look at that assemblage of meat and bones and to realize I'm of the same nature. So the director of the lab brought out each cadaver and told us the age and the sex. 
And I noticed that the first one was a man who was actually the same age as my father was at that point. And I just felt drawn to spending more time with that corpse. And as I stayed with it, I noticed that his hands were so like my father's hands. So the rest of the corpse that had the skin removed so that you could see inside and see all the organs, but the skin on the hands was still there. And it had those same mottled brown kind of liver spots, age spots. And I noticed how the fingernails were yellow and a little bit ridged like my father's hands. And then it just hit me in a whole new way that my father was going to become like this that he too was of a nature to die. And although it was deeply sobering, it was also so helpful, because when my father did die a few years later, I was able to go and sit with his body and just spend time taking in that reality that he was in some fundamental way just gone. And my brother and sister could not go anywhere near that. But I felt like it was, in a way, a gift. I wanted to honor his goneness, you could say. And I looked again at his hands, and I saw those brown, yellowy, ridged fingernails and the age spots. And I touched them. And I saw my own hands have got some little brown spots. And I felt my warm hand touching his cold hand. And I knew this hand, too, one day will be cold. And my father was much more than his meat and bone body. So as we were exploring a couple of weeks ago, his physical body is gone, but there's a kind of presence in a way he's here now, through memories, through images, through stories. And here is where contemplation of our own mortality can really help us to reflect what kind of legacy do we want to leave? What kind of memories and impressions and impacts do we want to have on other people? And so we touched into that a couple of weeks ago. But I want to emphasize again that the point of this practice is not to induce despair. The purpose is to help us strengthen the courage to live life more consciously, more fully. We don't know when we're going to die. But practicing with that truth can bring us more clarity about our deepest aspirations, what really matters to us. Because I know from my own experience, it's so easy to just slide into being complacent and procrastinate and go with the flow and drift along on the tide of unskillful motivations. And the weeks and the months and the years just kind of flow by. So as an antidote to that, we can remind ourselves of a phrase from the suttas. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I using my time? And again, the aim is not to bring up more stress and more pressure and more self-judgment, <laughs> but hopefully to be sobering in a good way, a way that helps us to have more clarity about what's really important and what might we still need to let go of. 
So for me, this is one of the huge benefits of death contemplation. One that I sometimes grudgingly appreciate. Just how contemplating my own mortality can reveal where I'm still holding on. What I don't want to let go. Where I still am clinging and resisting and I'm not free. And I get to see how that denial and that ignoring and that ignorance. Actually, how much energy and effort it takes to maintain those defenses. So again, it might sound counterintuitive, but this is yet another gift of death contemplation. To the extent that we are able to soften the denial, the resistance, the clinging, to that same extent, more energy actually becomes available to live with more ease and freedom. And actually, I would add, love. So here we have the connection to the compassion that I started with this evening. As we turn to face the truth that death is universal, that this is the reality for every human being who's ever been born, the more it can strengthen compassion. And in fact, not just compassion, but every one of the four Brahmavihara qualities, so kindness or metta, compassion itself, appreciative joy and equanimity. And one way that I've experimented with this practice is in bed at night, sometimes as I'm getting ready to sleep. I just imagine, okay, this is my last night, and I'm lying on my deathbed. I imagine that I'm lying on my deathbed at some unknown time in the future, and I'm looking back at myself right now, today. And I just silently wonder what I would say from that perspective, to my present-day me. So I'm lying there from the perspective of the end of my life, seeing how I am now, and inviting that future dying me to tell me whatever it wants to tell me. And last time I did this, I was surprised by how positive and encouraging that dying version of me was. I was surprised, but it silently told me that I was doing the best I possibly could and that I should appreciate that and that everything was just as it should be. And actually, I didn't have to try quite so hard all the time. There are no guarantees that's what might come up for you and I might do the same tomorrow and get a very different message. (laughs) But that was what came up at that particular point in time. So I just offer that as a suggestion, and if you decide to give it a try, I'd be interested to hear what comes up. So just to close, there's a quote from Gil Fransdahl I appreciate that summarizes this approach, some of these themes. He says, change is a central feature of life. It can be exhilarating, frightening, exhausting, or relieving. It can spark sadness or happiness, resistance or grasping. Insight into impermanence is central to Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice points us toward becoming equanimous in the midst of change, 
and wiser in how we respond to what comes and goes. In fact, Buddhism could be seen as one extended meditation on transience as a means to freedom. Confronting impermanence profoundly in this meditative way can open us to liberation, to freedom. The final liberative level of impermanence is the movement towards letting go at the deepest level of our psyche. Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. This release is sometimes called Mahasukha, the great happiness, which is said to be the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. So may we all taste more and more moments of this Mahasukha, the great happiness. It is also known as freedom. Okay, so thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.